You're listening to Faith and Family. I'm Andy Bates. New book from Concordia Publishing House. Very recent, actually, and uh, addressing very important topic with one of our favorite and regular guests here on Worldwide KFUO, the Reverend Dr. Matthew Richard, pastor of Zion Lutheran Church in Gwinter, North Dakota. is a frequent guest on his time here on Worldwide KFUO and the author of Will the Real Jesus Please Stand Up? Pastor Richard, glad to have you in studio today. Wonderful. It's good to be here. Welcome to uh, to Faith and Family. I know you've you've been on a number of programs here at Worldwide KFUO. I think this is the first time we've had a chance to talk on Faith and Family. I think so. Yeah, it's been KFUO and uh, boy, what is it? Cross Defense as yes, well. Sir. Mm-hmm. But yeah, first time here. It's good. And, uh, and, and traveling with your family, spending some time with them here at the studio today. It's nice to meet some of your family with you as well. Yeah, yeah. We took off on Thursday, drove down to St. Joseph's and then over here for the Issues Etc. Conference. And then uh, studios here today at KFEO before heading back today and tomorrow. Will the real Jesus please stand up? Twelve false Christs. The the uh, this is your your newest book from Concordia Publishing House. Uh, kind of a, an interesting, engaging, almost exciting read. Uh, the 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 title is intriguing. Will the real Jesus plan, please stand up? And implying that there are false Jesuses walking around. But what what prompted this book? Well, actually, uh, long story short, uh, with uh, there's a conference in Grand Forks, boy, in 2000, trying to think back, 2015. Yeah, 2015, there was a conference in Grand Forks, and I was asked to speak on the subject of Christ alone in the 21st century. And so as I looked at it, it was basically two kind of components of the talk, which was Jesus, and then the second part was Jesus alone. I mean, very simplistically stated, but as I realized, as I was going through, as I was defining about Jesus and him alone in the 21st century, I realized that uh, we have to pause and say, well, what do we mean when we say Jesus? Or what do we mean when we say Jesus Christ? Uh, Because as I was preparing the talk, I realized that, boy, pretty much anybody could affirm this, you know, what I was stating. Uh, Maybe they would be offended by the uh, alone part, but uh, I realized that, you know what, many other individuals maybe would have a different view of who Jesus was. And so I proceeded to talk about, well, we have to define Jesus before we can even say Jesus and him alone. And by defining Jesus, I decided to say, well, we should define who he is by saying who he's not. And so I developed six or seven false Christs uh, in the conversation. And that went off really well, really kind of hit a chord with people. They were all really fascinated by that. And then through a series of events that was recorded and ended up in the hands of a representative at Concordia Publishing House, and the representative gave a call and said, hey, would you ever think about making this into a book? And I thought, well, no, but boy, that's an interesting concept. And so, you know, kicked it around a little bit and developed, you know, a couple more false Christ. So I got up to 10 and I thought, well, if I'm at 10, make it an even dozen, right? So <laughs> moved it up to 12 false Christ and uh, started writing it uh, over the last seven, eight months and uh, developed into a book. And it was really quite fun to write. But these false Christs weren't just the, the creation of your own imagination. You, you found these, you encountered these false Christs in uh, people you met in daily life. Yeah, you know, in, in doing this, you know, the, the original six or seven were ones that I had encountered myself over the last 20 years. 
And as I thought about it, I'm thinking, well, where have I met other false Christs? And so I made a list, you know, of the six or seven. I added some more. So I had 12 false Christs. And I thought to myself, where have I met these false Christs? And I started making a list of all the different circumstances and people through the last 20 years where I've met these false Christs. And so I've lived in California. I've lived in the western North Dakota, the Bakken uh, oil boom area. I've lived in Minnesota. So I've been around over the uh, past 20 years. And so I developed that list. And then I thought to myself, well, I want to make sure to um, maintain confidentiality. So I made sure I wasn't breaking any, you know, confessional seal with any of these these stories. But uh, then I took the individuals and um, I took the, the, the individuals, the names, I switched the names and the circumstances. I mixed them all up and uh, created in this book uh, different individuals that you encounter. So as the reader goes through the book, they're going to come across people like uh, Jillian or Mr. Darby, um, Tamar or Ava, uh, different individuals that they will meet. And as they meet these individuals, it'll be an encounter between me and the individual, a conversation. And then in that conversation, you'll realize partway through the Jesus that they're confessing is not the same Jesus that uh, we see in the scriptures and in the creeds. And then and then like a DVD player, I'll hit pause every <laughs> so often, and which is a great feature. I'll hit pause in the book and say, well, why are they thinking the way that they're thinking? Why are they uh, coming across this way? What assumptions or presuppositions do they have that have allowed them to create a false Christ in the in their imagination in their mind? One of the the uh, the issues you address near the beginning of the the book is objective truth. That uh, what has happened to objective truth in North America that has really led to. The, the prevalence of these false Christs. Well, and that's the thing is we live in a culture where several things are happening. We, we are, number one, we are faced with this, this, this plethora, this abundance of choices. And so we're able to choose whatever app that we want on our, on our, uh, our phone. I mean, my goodness sakes, we go to the grocery store and there's, there's like three aisles of ketchup. It seems like, you know, with <laughs> 15 different bottles and different brands. And I live in a small town, about 800 people. And so that's what I like about my grocery store. I go in and it's just ketchup. <laughs> but I go to the bigger city and I, I almost find myself paralyzed with all the different choices before us. And so we're used to making decisions and making choices choices as people. And not only that, we have um, allocated uh, truth or that which is true for us. We've allocated that not in an objective sphere, but we've relocated truth into our own disposition. So the the each individual person is the maker of truth. So truth is in the eye of the beholder. And so because we've relocated truth in instead of an objective standard, something outside of us, we put truth in ourselves, then we, through the way of making choices, uh, through the way of idolatry, which is essentially what we're doing, and through um, us deciding for ourselves, we create and fashion Jesus the way that we want. So, uh, like a person making a wooden idol, we, we take Jesus of the Bible, we chisel off that which is not pleasing to us, and then we add an expansion pack of things to Jesus that we want to have that will support our own endeavors. And in, in essence, what we're doing is we're creating a, a false Jesus that looks like ourselves. I mean, really, it's quite fascinating. We create a false Christ that's comforting to us, one that supports our endeavors, um, our hopes, our dreams, one that doesn't interrogate us, one that doesn't stand above us, but one that we can be buddy-buddy with. And that's the essence of uh, what's going on in this book. So we've taken the objective truth of God created in 
All right, man created in God's image. We've taken this this objective truth of man created in God's image, traded it for a society that caters to individualism in which God is created in man's image. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. What are some common misconceptions about free will? You address that in, in your book as well, in the, in, in the introduction, which then plays out in all of these, these false Jesuses. Yeah, free will. Now, when we say free will, uh, most people, they get, they get very frustrated and they say, well, you know, are you saying that we don't have freedom to choose between uh, the two different uh, ketchups before us? I'm like, well, no, <laughs> that's not the case. I mean, whether we choose uh, this ketchup on this side or this mustard over here, we have completely free will. Uh, if we have two houses before us, a red house and a blue house, we have free will to choose those. But we do not have the freedom uh, to fear, love, and trust God. We do not have the freedom to choose Jesus. We do not have a freedom to to enact our wills and our abilities to do something that is righteous above and beyond ourselves. And so what we end up doing is is we we approach Jesus um, and we treat him, in essence, like that ketchup or like that mustard. And we say, well, I don't want this and I want this. And so we actually demote him to the point where we create him almost like a household product where we can manipulate him and manage him uh, and we can uh, impose our will and impose our ideas over top of him. So we stand above the scriptures, we stand above Jesus, and he's no longer the Lion of Judah. Uh, we've we've, we've uh, diminished him to a little lapdog that we drag around uh, with a leash and collar, uh, making him a subject to our, our free will to that which is below us, not realizing that he stands above us and that we do not have the ability or the right um, to, to possibly either choose him or claim him, um, but to uh, uh, really simply, we fail to understand, you know, that he's above us. And so we try to make him a part of our team, but the reality is he makes us a part of his team is really what's at play. So what is the goal in addressing these false Christs in your book? Is it, is it to win a debate? Well, that's something very, very carefully when I wrote the book that I had to um, uh, really give a lot of attention to. When, when I wrote the book, partway through the chapters is I'm introducing the reader to people like Jillian or Mr. Darby. Um, there's also, uh, uh, let's see, Mindy is another character and so forth. Uh, it's very easy to look at these people and hit pause. I mean, because I'm, I'm the writing the book, so I could hit pause and, and then we could just simply pause and laugh, laugh and mock them and ridicule them. But really what we're doing is we're creating a um, intellectual superior apathy and and I didn't want that to have you know didn't want that to happen in the book so the goal of the book was to steer away from apathy and also uh, to steer away from uh, you know indignation and anger and so uh, there's many times as I was writing I was going through I was like man I have to hit delete because I was getting really actually getting angry at these individuals real not realizing that they need compassion they have bought into a false Christ and as a result of that they need to be delivered repentance and they need they need to be rescued from this um, this this idolatry that has consumed them. So that the challenge of the book was to not write with apathy, where you stand above them in some superior intellect, um, and also not to write with um, antagonism, anger, but to write with compassion. I hope I delivered that in the book. Um, there's much repentance as I was going through it as well. Did you find that you identified with some of these characters that find some of yourself in these characters. Yes, absolutely. In, in the very final chapter, I reveal that, uh, you know, I'm not a, I'm not standing above this. I have done this myself. Um, there are several of those false Christs, the 12 false Christs, I would say 
four to six of them that I knew very well, uh, not just from other people, but from myself. Uh, the other six I had to do a little bit more research on and, and, and understand how they uh, came about. And so I, I actually, I went to Facebook and social media and I, I, I embedded myself in some of these uh, discussion groups. And I, I don't want to say I trolled, but I kind of poked some of these individuals and they were able to, uh, you know, share some of their dialogue and some of their insights. And I shared with many, I said, I'm doing some research and so I had their dialogue, their vocabulary, the things that they were going through, which is was which was very very helpful to uh, bring these characters to life in this book. So yeah, I'd say about half of them I had experienced and wrestled with myself. You mentioned you had their their vocabulary, you know, being familiar with the the terms they were using. Why is why is vocabulary important? Why is um, why is language important when we're talking about Jesus, particularly? the real Jesus. Yeah, yeah. Well, these individuals, uh, the language that they, they used, describe and they talk about who they assume him to be. And so language is very revealing. Language is extremely powerful. It influences people. It also reveals what we think, our, our worldview, our assumptions. And so the way that we talk about Jesus typically not only communicates to others a confession, you know, what we believe about Christianity and who we believe Jesus to be, but our, our language also communicates our assumptions, our presuppositions, uh, what we bring to the table. And so in in pausing in this book, as we went through and we heard these individuals, they would say certain things and I would pause, like I said, I would pause and we'd say, why are they saying this? And we would kind of peel back the layers and say, well, they're they're having these assumptions about Jesus, which is causing them to talk about him this way, which then confesses a false Christ, one that does not exist. And so the very importance is at the very end is to come back to the creeds and the confession and what do they confess about Jesus uh, for us here now. You mentioned that you use the word confess. Why, why confess versus debate or argue? Yeah, very good question. When it comes to confessing, we, we, we want to make sure to understand that apologetics, the defense of the faith, when we defend the faith, we're not going to be debating, um, we're not going to be um, putting, going into some sort of a cage fight where we're going to be duking it out. Apologetics is designed to be able to remove the rubble, to open up opportunities to confess. And when I say confess, that is simply confessing what the scriptures and what the creeds say about Jesus. And so we're not saying something of, of ourselves. So I'm not, when I'm confessing Jesus, it's not Matt Richard's confession. This is the confession of the scriptures. And it's in that confession of Christ that the Holy Spirit is at work. And we, the, the very concluding chapter, we talk about the Holy Spirit at work through the word to convert, uh, to bring about conviction. And so we're not some, um, you know, no disrespect to, to use car salesmen by any mean, but, uh, you know, as Christians, when we evangelize, we're not some used car salesman where we, we have a high-pressure sales tactic and we, we, we get them to sign on the dotted line. We're more of a news announcer. We come into the the uh, the, the news announcing uh, uh, studio, We the camera comes on, and we smile with joy, and we say, we have something great to tell you that happened in a historical event that Jesus was crucified. He was bloody and he was resurrected all for the forgiveness of our sins and so that's just a wonderful confession and through that confession we have uh the holy spirit working uh delivering faith and his goods to the people let's take a look at could you give us an example of one of these false christs that you address in your book will the real jesus please stand up 
Yeah, let's let's go with the very first one. Uh, we we hear the mascot, uh, Jillian. We meet Jillian, and uh, uh, as the reader reads the book, they find out that Jillian and I are visiting on an airplane, which happens many times when I travel. I'll wear my collar, and uh, when people see the collar, they either shut down and they're like, I don't want to talk to you know. Uh, this pastor next to me, or they want to reveal their whole life story. And this is the case with Jillian. She starts sharing about her um, uncomfortableness with Jesus. Uh, Not necessarily the Jesus that she has for herself, but the Jesus of her mom and dad, the Jesus of her pastor growing up. And so it had been some while since she'd been to church, but yet she still considered herself a Christian. But she just cannot comprehend a Jesus who believed in hell. She cannot comprehend a Jesus who uh, spoke the law because that would be rude that would be um, causing her pain that would be judgmental and so the Jesus that she envisioned was more of a false Christ called the mascot and the mascot is simply a hedonistic now that's a big word here but we'll unpack that Uh, it's a hedonistic false Christ now hedonism teaches us this that that which gives us pleasure is good and that which um, causes us pain must be evil so a Jesus who causes me pain in my life well that that hurts so therefore that must not be good so you know only jesus himself uh the, the jesus that jillian holds on to he, he wants me to be happy he doesn't want me to feel uncomfortable he doesn't want me to feel judged he doesn't want to scare me about hell so he's going to be a mascot and support me in whatever i do in life um i, I use the example of my my family and i my kids and i we, we love going to NDSU football. We live in North Dakota. And so right down the road, we go to NDSU football, and we always look for Thundar. He's the mascot. And, uh, you know, the, the NDSU Bison, they've had a remarkable streak of wins, five national championships, uh, FC, uh, F. FSC or FCS, I can't recall which one, the, the acronym, um, but they've had five national champions championships. But even when they're losing, Thundar is supporting them. And I would say even if the Bison were down like, you know, 100 to nothing, Thundar would be the only person in the stadium cheering them on and not getting down on them. And that's, <laughs> that's this mascot false Christ that Jillian has created for herself. This false Christ will support her no matter what she does. And even even in her sin, if it makes her happy, as the uh, uh, Cheryl Crow used to sing, right? The, if it makes you happy, it can't be that bad. And that's the model of this false Christ, the mascot, uh, denying hell, denying the law because that's judgmental, and supporting that which makes people like Jillian happy. And so that's the first false Christ that we meet through the person named Jillian, um, how she is confessing that she struggles with the Jesus of her parents and her pastor growing up because that one feels like uh, she feels judged by that false Christ. And according to her, Jesus would never, never judge her, but wants her to feel happy. What, what led to the, the, the creation of this, this false Christ, this mascot, Jesus? Well, for Jillian, here's the case. I mean, this is actually what's quite amazing. Jillian, like all the other characters you'll meet in the book, the different persons in the book, uh, they're not comfortable totally uh, denying Jesus. They're not comfortable saying, you know what, I'm not a Christian, I want nothing to do with Jesus, and calling themselves an agnostic or an atheist. Uh, That'd be way too radical for them. They have in their mind um, a much more, um, how would we say this, a much more of a, a still a love for Christianity, still an appreciation for Jesus, but that appreciation is to the point where they do not feel comfortable totally denying him 100%. So, 
you can either accept Jesus of the Bible, you know, receive the Christ of the Bible, or you can reject him totally. Uh, they're not comfortable with either or. So they want to embrace Jesus, but not the Jesus of the Bible. So they go the way, which is a third option, which is the most detrimental, which is the way of idolatry. And again, like we've said before, they come in, they chisel away that which is unpleasing to them, and they add that which they want uh, to this Jesus, this false Christ, and they fabricate for themselves a false Christ. And that false Christ, as we've said before here, uh, surprisingly looks very similar to themselves and he will neither interrogate them, uh, make them feel uncomfortable, but will uphold and support them in their endeavors. So they've kind of split the uprights. They've, they've, they, they, they don't want to have, uh, big technical words, cognitive dissonance. They don't want to feel at conflict with Jesus because it makes them feel uncomfortable. So either than totally rejecting him or accepting him, they create that third option, which is to refashion uh, Jesus in their mind to the way that they want. Throughout your book, you've included some questions for for consideration after you read a section and then some questions to reflect and, and, and consider. Who, how do you envision the reader using this book? Well, that's, that's a good thing. As we were kind of thinking through this with Concordia Publishing House, we thought, well, you know, these dialogues, these stories like of meeting Jillian or Mr. Darby or Ava um, and so forth, these stories are very captivating. I think they'll pull the reader in and then it's, it's really the reader kind of is able to sit back and watch these conversations. And then, like I said, we hit pause and then we dissect the the dynamics, what's being said, what the assumptions are. So we're kind of getting a behind the scenes look, but to just leave it at that, uh, I think we're doing injustice to the book. And so I, it's one of those things where I think people are going to want to talk about it because when you read the story and you say, you know, you meet Jillian, you say, well, man, I've met, you know, people like Jillian, maybe uh, in my family or down the road and so forth. I've met these other Jillians down the road. And so uh, we wanted to create with the study guide um, opportunities for them to reflect and learn more, but to do it in a group setting. So the book is really designed to be used maybe in a Sunday school, uh, adult Sunday school class or a youth group setting, um, or maybe just a bunch of people getting together on a you know Wednesday night reading the book together, having some coffee, and visiting about it. And so it would be designed where the uh, questions will lead the reader through, and then there's like a, boy, like a 40-page appendix appendix with answers. So we spent a lot of time. I worked with uh, Joel Willman over at CPH. We, we spent a lot of time on those questions and answers to really give resources. So the book itself, you know, is not a tremendously long book Book by any means. Each chapter is fairly quick mm-hmm. to read through, but there's a lot of content, but it's designed in a way to go to those study guide questions in the appendix to get further discussion. And uh, it, the questions are really designed to take the reader back to the Word um, and the creeds to know the real Jesus. Who To, to whom would you recommend this book? <laughs> yeah, um, boy, you know, as, as, as an author, you want to promote the book, I would say everybody. You want everybody to everybody, read it, everybody. right, right. Um, but I, I think, you know, the thing is, we, we have to acknowledge that these false Christs are not only in the culture, you know, out there, but they're also in the church as well. I mean, that's that's the tough thing that we have to acknowledge, that they're right in the church. They're in the church, they're in pulpits in America right now being proclaimed. And so I would say anybody that uh, would like to learn more about who Christ is, it's really a book on Christology. I mean, really, at the essence. But instead of saying, this is who Jesus is and this is who he's not, we kind of back 
you know, it's like backing into, we back into the garage, we back mm-hmm. into the Christology of Jesus by showing 12 examples who he is not. So I think for not only the church person, but maybe for the skeptic as well, I, uh, you know, I'm convinced that many people reject Jesus, but unfortunately they have not rejected the real Jesus, you know? So I, I think for a person who says, you know, I want to just, who is Jesus? Well, make sure you're rejecting the right Jesus, you know, first of all. Um, and then if you reject the real Jesus, boy, I, I, I can actually, as much as that hurts me to see that, I can still respect that. But oftentimes we run into people saying, well, I don't believe in Jesus. Well, I'll say, well, I don't believe in that Jesus either because he doesn't exist. That's an idol. That's a false Christ. So congratulations. We're on the same page. Now let's hear about the real Jesus. I saw this as a, a, as reading through this, the a, a book that I think would be helpful at a point in life where worldview is really being uh, developed and shaped high school, college years. Uh, I think that would be a great time to read this book during those high school and college years. Yeah, yeah. And that's one thing, too. When, when we're going through the edits on this book, we wanted to make sure um, partway through working with the editors, we had, boy, it was like 30 to 40 footnotes and uh, uh, references. And so we were kind of wrestling with it. Was this going to be a little bit more of an academic read or not? And so we made a decision partway through and we stripped out all the 40 footnotes up to that point. And then my wife went through it. Uh, God bless her. She went through it and she had a little red pen and she marked every big word. She said, you know what, uh, that's that's too much. But but not to throw everything out. I didn't want to throw the theology out. So, so anything that was a little bit too complex, I either took it out and replaced it with, you know, the same words, a little bit more easy to understand. But then if there are concepts, instead of, you know, totally tossing all that out, we created uh, text boxes in there. And so that will raise the reader up. So, you know, I'm not shying away of big terms, but rather these text boxes uh, interspersed throughout the whole book will then help the reader and their vocabulary and help them understand. So it's raising the reader up. So we're I guess what I'm saying, we're not. I'm, I didn't try to dumb this down, and I don't mean that to be uh, cruel in saying that. But but we wanted to raise the reader up while at the same time making the theology uh, and the content of this book very accessible and understandable. Don't throw out the vocabulary, rather than uh, rather equip the reader with exactly. the vocabulary. Yep, exactly. Will the real Jesus please stand up? 12 False Christs from the Reverend Dr. Matthew Richard, pastor of Zion Lutheran Church in Gwinner, North Dakota, and frequent guest here on KFUO's His Time. Thank you so much, Pastor, for being my guest today and sharing with us about your new book, Will the Real Jesus Please Stand Up? Thank you, Andy. It's a pleasure. Listen to Faith and Family Monday through Friday at this time. Faith and Family is a listener-supported program. Your financial support is needed for Faith and Family to continue. Our address is 1333 South Kirkwood Road, St. Louis, Missouri, 63122. You can contact us on the web and download Faith and Family at KFUO.org. Worldwide KFUO, on the air, online, and on demand.